let me tell you who we have with us today. So Judy Klistner is a senior lecturer in Bible at the Pardes Institute for Jewish Studies. By the way, if you're keeping track of Pardes teachers, so we had Yaffa Epstein here just a few weeks ago. We had Rachel Berkowitz here a year ago. Who else do we have from Pardes? I know we had someone else in Pardes. Do you guys remember? Okay. We've had multiple people from Pardes. And uh, we have Beth Elster here. Beth and her family took off a whole year. I forget, that was a while ago now, right? 11 years ago, it feels like it was yesterday, and they, they moved the family to Jerusalem for one year with their kids and, and um, Andy, and they studied, they, the adults studied at Pardes, and while the kids studied at various places. Um, so I know that we have a big Pardes um, fan. Um, okay, so going back. Judy is a senior lecturer in Bible at the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies in Jerusalem. She teaches Bible to JTS rabbinical students in Israel. In her teaching and in her writing, Judy weaves together traditional exegesis, modern scholarship, and her own original interpretations that are informed by close readings of the text. She lectures internationally at synagogues, campuses, rabbinical training programs, and adult education programs that span the denominational spectrum. Judy is a regular visiting lecturer at the London School of Jewish Studies. Where, uh, is that where Rafi Zaram is? Yes. Yeah, so we've had Rafi here, and I hope we'll bring him back this year. And is the author of Subversive Sequels in the Bible, How Biblical uh, Stories Mine and Undermine Each Other which received a 2009 National Jewish Book Award. Please join me in welcoming Judy Klitzner for her first teaching opportunity and experience in Orange County. Thank you for coming. Okay. Thank you very much. I think I... I think we have any more handouts? We do not have any more handouts. I was about to be very impressed that we had the precise number, but then a whole bunch of people came in. Um, Thank you, Ari, for that beautiful introduction. I feel. Oh, pleasure to be. Oh, you just went on the trip? Yes. Okay, well, hearing about this, this is my first time in Orange County. It's my first time. Yes. Love it, love it. It's my first time exposed to. Okay, CSP, what are the O's? O O's? What's the O? O C. Aren't there two O's? That was a typo? Okay. <laughs> My computer doesn't know that. Okay. Okay. Got it. Anyway, it has been both, to hear about it just today and to see it, it has been both exhilarating to see the, the explosion of Jewish learning here in a place that I never heard of, and also exhausting to hear how busy you are and he's schlepping you all over the world and you don't sleep and you run around to the World Trade Center and God knows what. Um, but it, that's, it's fantastic, and I, it, it is such a great pleasure to see people pull together around learning, learning biblical text, learning Jewish text. It's, it's really uh, very, very beautiful, so thank you. And, uh, and now we've got a lot of work to do. What, till what time do I have, Ari? Hey, one hour. One hour from now. Yeah. Okay, none of that stuff counted. Let's go. Okay. Um, good. In my teaching, in my learning, what never ceases to fascinate me is what I like to call the vibrant conversation that is going on between biblical passages. Stories are in a kind of dialogue with one another. And my question to you, and I don't know if my, my talk today came with a warning, but I do expect information to come in this direction as well, even though I have the microphone. Um, what would be our tip-off as good, careful readers of any piece of text that two stories are talking to one another? What are we looking for? Yeah? Similar words or word phrases. Fantastic. Words that appear in story A, and those same words appear in story B. Now, do I mean any words? Um, and in fact, you know, my students at Pardes, God bless them, they always want to please their teacher, and every once in a while a very enthusiastic student will come running up to me and say, Judy, it's fantastic, look what I found. I, this story has Vayomer, and that story has Vayomer, right? Okay, basically every story in the Bible has the word Vayomer, and he said. Um, so no, that, so how would we refine that? Stories that share vocabulary that what? That's, rather, that's relatively unusual, rare, perhaps relatively insistent words that repeat themselves frequently in a piece of text, and those same words appear in another text. What else besides words? Yeah. Extra. Ideas that seem to contradict each other. Ah, we're going to get to the contradiction in a moment, but first, action. action. Similar action, similar storylines, plot lines. 
Locations, names of places, names of people, places, themes, plots, words. Um, the the, the, the uh, talk that I'm not going to give today um, is if, if the most intuitive match that I found is if I just throw out two names at you and say, what do these stories have in common? Noah and Jonah. What might you say to me? Water and boats and God being what? Incensed and punitive and wanting to destroy a population that is bad. Um, in both stories, we have the Yonah, right? Yonah, Jonah's Hebrew name is Yonah, which is what? The dove, right? Where's that in the, in the Noah story? That's the bird that's sent out to find out if the world is inhabitable again. You take all of this, name places such as Tarshish, Nineveh, very unusual places appear in both of those stories and the list goes on and on and on. We would be remiss as readers if we didn't notice that and draw those stories together and ask the question, what is the gain? What's the payoff? It, by viewing these stories more than viewing each one individually, in viewing, by viewing them as parallel story stories that are in this kind of dialogue with one another. So that was the first step and now I want to get back to the comment that you made. The first step and here this wonderful book with this fancy title, subversive sequels in the Bible, how biblical stories mine and undermine each other. What we've talked about so far is the mining process. Stories borrow each other's language and, 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 and themes in order to reinforce, enhance, to make a point. But sometimes one story will borrow the language and themes of another not just to echo it and reinforce it, but to undermine it, to oppose it. And that's where the subversive dangerous part comes in. Um, mining and undermining. And in fact, in the story of Noah and Jonah, after what I did he in here in chapter one was after I showed how much the two stories had in common, was to really point out how the second story, the story of Jonah, actually undermines and subverts the entire uh, foundation of the Noah story, which, is, which posits the fact that sinful populations must die. Right? What happens in the story of Jonah is the, is the precise opposite. It takes all the same language and says, wait a minute, if the population gets a chance to transform themselves, they can also overturn the evil, the evil decree. So one story is about, inevitable, is about sin and inevitable destruction, and the other is about sin and the, the constant, constantly open possibility for humanity to change itself and consequently to change its, its future. So that, that's what I'm looking at in the mining and undermining. By the way, I worked on this book for quite a few years. I really worked hard on it. And the last piece of it was the title, and I was so proud of this title, and I finally walked into my, my home when I had it, and I announced it to my family. I said, I got it, subversive sequels in the Bible, how biblical stories mine and undermine each other. My youngest son, who at the time was about 17 years old, looked at me with this look of pain on his face and he said, Ima, no one is going to buy a book with that name. He said, you've got to call it Monkeys in Space. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's one of these questions, you know, it'll always be out there. If I had only listened, who knows? But anyway, um, but Stuart, you read it anyway and I thank you for that. Um, okay. Today, we are going to be mostly mining, but if you're really cooperative and I got a good vibe here, we're gonna, we, are gonna, we are going to engage in one act of subversion. Um, yeah. So the two stories that I want to, the first two stories that I want to, um, that I want to present are very curious stories, both of them. And they share a theme that, that one might consider to be unusual and unexpected in this Jewish Bible of ours which is two patriarchs, two Jewish leaders, and I'm using that term anachronistically, nobody's called Jewish yet, but just for the sake of simplicity, let's call them that. Two Jewish leaders who face a moment of great crisis, a hurdle that they can't quite cross, and at the, the, the most critical moment, a non-Jewish priest comes out of nowhere and saves the day, gives that person the perspective and the advice that they need in order to move forward, and to become God's th a successful leader. Anybody have any idea where I'm going with this? Let's go. go. I'll tell you where I'm going with this. I'm going right here. Let's look at the page. When we meet, our first, our first leader is Abraham. Okay, and just by way of background, um, 
Abraham's story begins famously in source number one, where God says to Abraham, one fine day, lech lecha, get going. How would you translate the word, what's lecha, lech lecha? Unto you, okay, that, that word is, initially, is, is redundant, right? What would we have lost if it had simply said, lech, go. Lecha seems to be suggesting something else. So some people will say it's just a figure of speech. Others will say, no, let's take it quite literally. Go, what did you say, unto you? Is that what you said, this lady here? Go thou. Go okay. thou, oh, go thou, okay. You said something else the I first time. I said go unto you. What does go unto you mean? What do you think that means? Well, it's a different spelling. Okay, but what, what would that mean to go unto you? Yeah. Okay, so there's for yourself, which would, which would suggest that somehow you will benefit. Go for your own good. But go unto yourself might suggest something else. Define How about you are going, not anybody else? Okay, you to the exclusion of everyone else. Lecha. Good, okay, and notice, of course, the word play, that's, they both have the identical consonants in them. Yes? Go become yourself. Become yourself, beautiful. That, um, the chas in, in chasidut, that is the way that it's generally read. Lecha means to yourself, to that place that is uniquely yours. If you follow your inner truths, you will get, you will get to, to where you need to be. And what's interesting here is the connection between following God, God, right, this upward motion of looking up to God and hearing this voice. Um, and, and there's some beautiful material out there about, you know, that why, does, why, is, why Abraham, you know, why, why does God speak to Abraham? And the, the Sfat Emet for one turns it around and says it's not that, it, God is out there saying lech lecha to everybody. Abraham's the one who heard it, right? This sense that he's hearing it. He's looking up and, 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 and creating that, or is he open to that conversation with God? And at the same time, when he follows God, he is moving on a journey that gets him in further and further inside himself toward that place of great integrity and truth, licha. And in fact, Avraham, right, his, what's Avraham's last name besides Avinu? What's he called? Avraham Ha, anybody? Ivri. Ivri, and this is the this is the term, the biblical term that where the word Hebrew comes from. Uh, but the midrash has a great time with this, and I think the midrash is spot on when it says Ivri comes from the word Ever, on a side. All the world is on this side, and he's on the other side. He is he is an iconoclast. He follows his own truth. He goes in the way that is only his, not, without concern for the, for the, for public opinion, for for conventional wisdom. Now, that's a great thing, and, he, and one could argue that Avram has to be that way because he's a revolutionary. He's starting something that's brand new, and if you think about, and if you look in history books, the people who start revolutions are usually not the best family people. And here, Avraham is told to leave his family behind with a few exceptions. Only those people who are going on the same path can go with him. But, and so there's something very solitary about it, about moving to the other side, moving inward, looking upward, moving inward. And in fact, the rest of his, through the rest of his career, even after he gets into the promised land, he's going to continue shedding people, right? Who's he going to shed even after he leaves his father's house? First son. Which son? His first son, Yishmael. Who else? What? Lot, his nephew. Who else? His wife, Hagar, Sarah, twice. Remember in those, those dodgy stories about, she's my wife, she's my sister, right? Um, who else? At the end, Isaac, right? The, the binding of Isaac. There's, his life is a series of leave-takings where there's this sense that he, at, at great personal cost, he's going to... He's going to create this revolution. He's going to purify it, distill it, keep, and he has to do this because he doesn't have a congregation of people yet. There is no nation. So here is Abraham, who's a symbolic leader of a nation that has not yet been born, who has to solidify this thing, make it real, hold onto it, right, contain it, until he can pass it along to the next generation and the next, until ultimately there will be an actual nation that will be able to practice it. So his, his, I would argue that his whole career is, is intensely internal. That's his, that's his situation. The pro yeah, go ahead. Uh, since the Nikud yes. is, uh, is a late addition, yes. so an original, it was, uh, I would read, Vayomer Hashem el Abraham, lech 
By all yes, means, go. Abraham yes. really doesn't want the wound. Right, right. God is forced. Ah, is, is okay, that's another, that's, that's a direction of another sort. Is there, is there reluctance? I, I would like to argue here that, what, that there is a cost and that God knows there's a cost to this, right? To leave, it's, it's unimaginable. Leave everything you've ever known, your culture, your people, your language, everything, and go to something that's brand new that no one's ever done before. But there is an, a, a sense here, if you look again at, ver, at source number one, that there is a payoff. And here, if we had a lot of time, which next time you invite me, give me two hours, please, at least. I'm very, very greedy when it comes to time. Because I, I, you know, it's, so much, it's so much more meaningful when I, you, know, you guys see it. One of the beautiful things about, about the text, about the biblical text, is the art of repetition where in a very short amount of space, of textual space, you'll see a word that repeats itself over and over and over again. And this is very different. Anyone who's ever written anything knows that you try to avoid repeating the same word again and again and again, right? That's why people make a lot of money on thesauruses, although not anymore because it's all online, let's face it. However, um, the idea of a leading word, a guiding word that insistently repeats itself that word, if we follow it, will help us unlock the passage. And here, the word that we have five times in these three verses, take a look at it. Source one, what is it? What's the word? Five times. Who can find it? What? Bracha, blessing. Five times God says the word blessing. If you do this, you will be blessed. There is a payoff. The problem is, we don't know when that blessing is actually going to happen. And in fact, by all indications, it seems that that blessing is nowhere in sight. Because almost immediately after Abraham follows this, this call, he goes to the promised land and he finds out there's no food in the promised land. There's a famine. Where does he do? He leaves. He goes into exile. Anybody know where he goes? Egypt. 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 And once he gets there, he finds out that, oh, I just noticed something, trouble, my wife is beautiful, what am I going to do? I'm afraid that they're gonna take her away, they're gonna kill me. So he comes up with this story, she's not really my, my wife, she's really my sister, thank God we don't have to talk about this. What I do wanna to get to though, and this is all by way of background, is that the king, the earlier pharaoh takes Sarah, um, and when, when the ruse is finally uh, uncovered, he gives her back, and he pays Abraham a lot of money, and Abraham takes the money. Okay, what I'm getting at here is, after this grand celestial vision, where God says, lech lecha, look up at me, look inward toward yourself, you will be mightily blessed, go out there and follow your truth, what happens? Almost immediately, there is this spiral, this downward spiral that starts to drag Abraham down, because, let's face it, it's really hard to keep a purity bubble around yourself when you're living in the actual world. How do you keep out all opposing forces, right? It's one thing to say, lech lecha, go, 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 go in, in, in. But, but what do you do about a world that is, that is knocking at your door and trying to break down those barriers? And so Abraham has to respond to those things, and he has to compromise in, in, in me meeting those challenges, including lying to the king of Egypt, including taking this dubious money at the end of the story. And I would argue that this is gonna get to one further place of danger, and this is the lowest point that we are gonna, in which we are going to find Abraham, and that is in source number two. Source number two, um, and here is where I'm gonna ask you to, um, Okay, one more word of background and then I'm gonna ask you to take two minutes and, and read this on your own. There is a, in chapter 14 of Genesis, there is a series of wars between a group of four kings and five kings and they have names that are impossible to pronounce. And if you're sitting in shul, my anecdotal survey, this is when everybody's eyes glaze over and they start to fall asleep. You can't keep track of what's going on. You don't know what this has to do with anything. What is it, we're reading about Abraham, what, is, what, what do we care about? Four kings and five kings until we finally find out why it's relevant because Lot, Abraham's nephew, who has joined the, the, the team with Sodom at the head of it, Sodom, right, the evil empire, um, right, it's North Korea, what's the worst empire today? No, 
Okay, whatever the word. Isis. What's that? Isis. Isis, right? The king of Isis. If Isis had a king, that that he will have to join. So Lot has has joined those people. They are losing the war, and Lot is now taken captive. And Abraham gets the information. Your nephew has been taken captive. Abraham, what are you going to do? What are his options? There are only two. Either either help out, in which case, what's the cost of that? Aligning himself with ISIS, or stay pure. Me, I, I'm the Lech Lecha guy. I'm not going to get involved dirty my hands in that way. I'm going to stay pure. And what happens to his nephew? He'll die in, in, in captivity. So what do you think he does? What does he do? He gets involved, and because of his help, he wins the war. Okay, now, here is where our action picks up. The king of Sodom comes out to greet Abraham. In victory, Abraham has enabled him to win the war. This is the king of Isis coming out to meet him, arm outstretched, ready to give him a clap on the back to say, great work, Abraham. What a winning team are we. Let's keep it up. I would argue that is the lowest point that Abraham has, has gotten to because, because now he, he, is, he, is, he is in the potentially in the clutches of the greatest symbol of evil that the Bible has to offer. Okay, I'm going to ask you now to take a minute and a half and read source number two in whatever language is, is comfortable for you. I would urge you to speak in, in a voice that is audible to the person next to you so that we can turn this room into a rocking baby drash for a minute and a half. And I want to ask you to look for the following. What is wrong with this passage? What's, there is a central problem looming over it all. Go. Source number two. What? I'm sorry. Uh, it's on the first page of your sources. Genesis 14. See it? When you are finished, eye contact will tell me. Okay, what's the problem? Now, there are many problems here, many, many specific problems. I'm talking about the mother of all problems. What is the big problem that makes this passage almost impossible to read? Okay, that is a problem, but that's not the big one. How about if I add the word sequence? Does that help? How about this? How about this? Verse 17. Okay, when he returned from defeating blah, 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 the king of Sodom came out to meet him. What should the next verse say? Without looking, what should it say? The king of Sodom came out to meet him and what? And he did something, said something. What happens instead? 18. Oh, of course. And Malkitzedek, king of Shalem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. What? What? Who is this other king who was not supposed to be in my narrative, has absolutely nothing to do with anything that came before, and has nothing to do with anything that comes afterwards? We're in the middle of a narrative between the king of Sodom and Abraham, and suddenly, out of nowhere, comes this other king who makes a little speech, disappears, and that's the end of it. Why has he so rudely intruded himself upon our narrative? Okay, is that a fair question? Okay, great. Now, what do we do with it? First of all, I want to, I want to really congratulate you here. Usually by this point, if I ever say this, somebody's already, well, no, but that's because blah, 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 blah. Kolakavod, really. It's really getting harder and harder for people to just celebrate a great problem, and I think you let yourselves do it. Just appreciate it. This is a fantastic problem. Okay, now, step two, after we've breathed it in, now let's see if we can solve it. Okay. Some, yes? Who's the he that's being referred to? He was the priest. It seems that that is referring to Malkitzedek, right? Malkitzedek is Melech Shalem, the who, Kohen Le'el Elyon. He, the, the, the ante, direct antecedent, I think that's the, probably the safest, but we'll see. There is, there is plenty of ambiguity here as well. Let, let's, let's just try to approach this. I, I want to suggest two possibilities, and the first one is going to be a bit of a straw man. Straw man warning. Um, yeah, mean, meaning I don't, this is not where I want to go with it, but some people have suggested 
that the king of the, the Malkit Sedek is, is inserted into this narrative simply as contrast to the king of Sodom. Before we can appreciate the true, full evil of the king of Sodom, we first have to meet somebody who does everything right so that we can then meet somebody who does everything wrong. Right? And, and any support for that? What, what do you see in here that might support that notion? Anything? What? The fact that it's in there. Um, and, and Sodom is, right, is a symbol of injustice and Malkitzedek, his name, what does his name mean? King of Justice. By the way, the King of Sodom has a name too. It's not here on your page, but it's a fantastic name. His name is Bet. All right, I'm going to do this. Sorry. Um, can you still hear me? We're doing good? This is his name. This is too good to miss. His name is King in Evil. So we've got, we've got King of Righteousness, Malkitzedek and king of evil, right? Nothing subtle here. This is, these are two bad, this is a good guy and a bad guy. However, oh wait, we're putting this right back where it belongs. I have all kinds of skills, okay. Um, however, that's great, but it's not good enough for us because we have been following this narrative with following our protagonist, who is Abraham. So what do we care? Why do we need to spend all this ink on, on a comparison of two kings now who we've never met before and whom we are not going to ever meet again. It has to be about Abraham somehow. So here's, here's what I would like to suggest. Um, and here, because we're in the vicinity of the city of Los Angeles, I would like to think cinematically with you for a moment. Okay? Let's see how this goes. Um, no, maybe it's more theatrically. All right, I've been to New York too, and so have some of you. Um, there is the king of Sodom, remember, he's coming out to greet Abraham. And he's, I, you just picture him with a big smile on his face and his hand outstretched. Wow, Abraham, what a winning team are we? About to, let's keep it up. And you've got Abraham over here who's been on this downward spiral. He's got to make all these compromises and now this is the worst compromise of all. Here he comes, here he comes. Osama bin Laden is coming at me trying to shake my hand. And he's standing there going, ooh, this is bad. This is as bad as it's ever been. And from backstage, the director says, freeze. And he's frozen doing this, and he's frozen doing this, and upstaging everyone is who? Malkitzedek Melech Shalem. And he makes a little speech. Notice that the first word that comes out of his mouth is Baruch. All right, and this was our word that was very significant from where? Lech Lecha, the five-fold blessing. Here's Abraham who got the promise of the blessing but has been seeing the opposite of blessing everywhere he looks. And now we've got this figure, and here I want to argue this, let me go, it's my story, where, where Abraham, every, he's completely frozen except one part of him is unfrozen and that's his ears. He can hear what Malkitzedek is saying, and he is hearing exactly the messages that he needs to hear in order to, in order to stave off the advances of this evil king. This is, the, this is the message he needs to get. First of all, you are blessed. Remember where you came from. Remember that vision that you had that was looking up to God and looking inward toward yourself. And Malkitzedek now is going to invent a new name for God. We've never heard this name before, El Elyon. God most high, remember that, God in the heavens, right? Look up. He talks about Abraham's hand, the yad. He says, your hand is empowered. God has empowered your hand. You can do this. He also gives him ma'aser, which is what? A tenth. He gives him a tenth. Okay, and here I think this is very significant because Remember the story of Egypt where another evil king wanted to give Abraham a lot of money and Abraham took it. And now Malkitzedek is saying, let me give you money. Let me give you all the things that you need. Let me build you up in every way a person can be built, spiritually, morally, emotionally, physically, materially, right? He's, he's, physically he's giving him bread and wine, he's feeding him. 
But he's also saying, let me give you all the stuff that you need so that when that guy offers you things, you don't have to compromise and you don't have to play ball with that guy. And let me remind you, you'll be, let me reach your spirit by saying you're blessed and you are in a relationship, an unshakable relationship with God most high. Now, I, I, my argument is that that's what God is doing. Um, doesn't work. And now let's get back to the, to the text. I would argue that the moment then, after this happens, the director says, okay, unfreeze, or thaw, or whatever they say, right? And everybody unfreezes, and the king of Sodom now, it's almost as if, I, okay, where was I so rudely interrupted? In verse um, 21, 21, back in source two, el Avram. the king of Sodom said to Avram, ten li hanefesh, the first word that comes out of his mouth, give. Makit Tzedek is the giver, the king of Sodom is the taker. Give me, ten li hanefesh v'haruchush kach lach, and you take the possessions, okay? Keep the stuff. I would, here's, here I'm gonna venture out into the realm of a shaky, a shaky branch and tell you that even though on the surface what this verse means is, you, I want my, my hostages back and I'm gonna give you all the material goods. I think there's a secondary reading of this because the word nefesh can mean the people, it can also mean the soul. Basically what I think he's saying is a, a, a Faustian devil's bargain. You take the possessions and if you do, your soul is mine. This is the moment where if Abraham does it, if he takes it, he could be lost forever. And that's why it was so crucial that Malkitzedek make that little, that little magical performance so that Abraham is ready now for this, for this great danger. And now Abraham speaks, and all of a sudden, he's got a new way of talking. He's got a whole new vocabulary, which is taken directly from Malkitzedek. Vayome Avram Elmelech Sedom. Verse 22, I'm just going to read it in the Hebrew, but the English is below. First thing he says, Harimoti Yadi, right? He talks about his hand, that which Malkitzedek has spoken of, his hand that was empowered. Abraham says, now that hand, I feel the power. I'm going to hold that hand up to God. El Elyon, using exactly that name for God that Malkitzedek invented. By the way, we say this every day, right, in, the, in, the, in our tefillah. In our prayer, El Elyon Kone Shamayim Ba'aretz, sound familiar? Yeah. That's Malkitzedek introduced this. It comes directly from this, from this passage. And Abraham repeats it. Oh yes, that's the God we're talking about. And then he says to him, in verse 23, He says, I won't take anything from you, you king of Sodom, you scoundrel. V'lo tomar ani he'esharti at Avram, and here I think there's some wonderful wordplay being presented. Ma'aser, meaning a tenth, has the same root as he'esharti, to make rich. He's saying basically, I don't need your riches because I have been enriched in every way that is, that is possible to be enriched by Malkitzedek. Now there's one more, much the biggest piece of this, getting back to the name Malkitzedek, I would argue that the most important thing that Malkitzedek does for Abraham is to, is to model the future of Abraham's entire calling. What is it that God has called upon him to do? And here I wanna, I wanna draw your attention on your sources to source number five. Um, and here, this is the um, solution to a great mystery. Why did God choose Abraham to begin with? So I suggested earlier maybe God was calling everybody, but the text itself never tells us why. One fine day God speaks to Abraham, and that's why we have a whole midrash, tons of, of material in the midrash that creates this beautiful story about the fiery furnace and the little boy who discovers monotheism on his own. That's actually not in the biblical text. We're never told why God chose Abraham until six chapters later. And here's the reason. Source number five. God says, sorry, I almost forgot. Source number five, are you with me? What page? sources Oh, I don't actually, and I'm working off of a, you know what, can I borrow somebody's, I, I should probably be using. See, they're not numbered. Oh, not numbered. Oh, I see the problem. Okay, on page two of your sources, the bottom of the page where it says Genesis 18. Are you with me? Okay. 
God, and here's the Hebrew, the English is at the top of the next page. I have singled him out, says God. Why did I single out Abraham? That he may instruct his children and his posterity to keep the way of the Lord. Derech Hashem. What, how is the way of the Lord defined? By doing what is just and right. Now, this is astounding for many reasons. First of all, why does God choose Abraham according to this text? Why? Careful. Why? To be dedicated to justice. To be dedicated. In other words, we should stop asking, what did Abraham do to, to warrant this? This, this text is saying it's not because of something that's already happened. Biglau would be in Hebrew for that. But what's the word here? Lima'an, future-oriented. He is chosen for a responsibility, that a, a, a 10-ton weight that's going to be placed on his shoulders in order to do something. And that something is to, is to purvey the word of God, the way of God, which is pared down to two words. And they're synonyms. Tzedakah umishpat. Justice and righteousness. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, wait a minute, where, where, there must be in between the fine print about glot kosher and, right, where is it? Where is it? But this text is telling us this is the goal of this thing. Yes, you're gonna have all kinds of commandments and, it's a, and, and, and there are all reasons for all those things, but at, the, at its core, at its essence, this is about creating a world that is filled with justice and righteousness. That is derech Hashem. Okay, so it's two things here. One is that it's future-oriented, it's goal-oriented, it's responsibility-oriented, and the other is that it's about creating a just world. Okay, I would argue that Malki Tzedek, first of all, by his name that invokes this calling, Tzedek, his name is Tzedek, and he, and he, he models Tzedek. Here is a weary patriarch, let me give him everything. And tzedek actually has these, this dual connotation, right? We, we, what do we have in our homes? We have a tzedakah box. It doesn't mean righteousness, it means charity. And tzedek has both of those aspects to it. Doing the right thing, taking care of others, is justice, right? And that's an interesting talk for another time. But the idea that this is, this is what it's all about is, I think, could not, could not be made more clearly here. Yes? Okay. Our topic is uh, non-Hebrew yes. advisors. That's right. So what more does this guy, Malki Tzedek, who is the, 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 the priest of El Elyon, what more does he have to do to not be considered one of us? I, I, would, I would take your question, because I'm, I'm all about subversion, and flip it on its head. I want to know why is this text so insistent on not converting him to Judaism. Okay, and key, you should know that there are many Midrashim that want to convert him to, to Judaism. Right, they're basically, Midrash looks at a character. He, it seems like a good character, but he's not Jewish. Okay, there are only two options. Either he's not really such a good character, or he's really Jewish. I'm looking at this and I'm saying, if you read it head on, he is most definitely not Jewish, and most definitely a good character, and not just a good character, he's the guy who has the answers when our patriarch is out of answers. Why is that model so important? We're still, we've still got a half an hour and I'm not gonna answer that, but I wanna show you that it's going to happen again. All right, now. But he's not part actually of the group of kings. No, he he's, not. he's not. He's not, so he is not, there were five of the kings against four. Yes. Dom on one hand and Kedar on the other. Yes. He all of a sudden appears with the group of Stom. That's right. That, and I think again, that's the point. He is from elsewhere. He's from exactly. elsewhere. And that I think is the critical point here, the elsewhereness, the otherness. He is not part of the story. He's not on the inside of it. Yeah. Why do I always translate the Yebracha yeah. and you'll be a blessing. Why is it not looked at, why they always translate and, you, and you'll be a blessing, why is it not translated as imperative? Strive and be, strive to be a blessing. What, what, it's the difference between right. 
like kadoshim to you. Right. It's not that you're already holy. You have to strive for it. Okay. And why do they always translate it I, this I, way? I don't know. I think you're right. They shouldn't. Whoever they are, they shouldn't. They should stop that. <laughs> anyway, I, I want to I want to get on just to one more piece about this story so that we'll have time to look at a second story. And that is on page three of your sources, Genesis 14 and 15. And here I just want to say that um, if Genesis 14 is all about this kind of grimy war of survival between two sets of kings, it's all about just mundane reality. Chapter 15 could not be more different. It's about Abraham meeting God in another grand celestial vision. Um, and the text there in 15 begins with the words, achar ha-devarim ha-eleh, after these things, and I apologize, I don't have the English here, but basically all I wanted to say was, these two stories are drawn together. Achar ha-devarim ha-eleh is like an arrow bringing those stories together. And what I've developed here, and if you really, if you want to look into the, to the, to the, to the nuts and bolts of it, it's here in my book, it's really remarkable how many words are shared between these two stories. Lists of really, like the most odd words, like rifaim, emim, dan, rechush, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, but significantly, uh, what I'm arguing here is that God is going to use some of Malkitzedek's language, um, which we, again, don't have time to go into, and, and I think that the, the crux of it here is that Malkitzedek prepares Abraham not only for his meeting with the king of Sodom, that's really important, that gets him back on track toward himself and toward God, but as a result of that, he prepares Abraham for the next event, which is meeting God in what can only be described as an act of a foreshadowing, a strong foreshadowing, of revelation. And here, um, in this story, oh, first of all, let's just look at Rashi. When it says, I, I, this is when, when God brings him outside, the text says in this before meeting him, Rashi says, I think very, with great insight, he says, he brought him outside, he brought him out from the earth's hollow spaces and lifted him above the stars. That's really all I'm trying to say, is that Malkitzedek has started this process of bringing Abraham out of these hollow spaces into which he has fallen and bringing him back to the stars. And the stars are in this chapter where God, there's this, this like the same audio visual effects that we're gonna see later on Mount Sinai, the darkness, the dread, and then the Lord is going to say, I am the Lord who took you out of, does that sound familiar, yeah. right? But instead of saying who took you out of Egypt, as God will say to the, to the people, God says to Abraham in his own personal theophany, God says, I'm the Lord who took you out of Ur-Kasdim, which is where Abraham comes from. So we've got this very strong foreshadowing, and, but the model is, this, is the, the, the patriarch in trouble, the non-Jewish priest who helps him get out of trouble and prepares him for his meeting of God, a symbolic receiving of the Torah, whose foundation is Tzedakah u'mishpat. That's the model. Believe it or not, it's going to happen again. And now we've got to start moving faster. Let's go to Exodus number two. On your page, our second patriarch is Moses. <clears throat> and Moses, I would argue, has almost the opposite problem from the problem of Abraham. If Abraham's struggle is to reach inward and upward, Moses' struggle is going to be to reach outward because, let's face it, he's got an actual nation that he's got to lead. However, Moshe has been born in this gap between two cultures, right? He's got, he's, what is he? is he? Is he a Hebrew? Is he an Egyptian? He's got two mothers, two families, but in a sense, he belongs everywhere and nowhere. And so, where we're going to pick up the action in Exodus 2 is where Moshe goes out to meet his, 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 his brothers. He's looking for a community. Where do I belong? And notice, we talked earlier about the, the word that repeats itself many, many times in a, in a short amount of space. There's one wonderful, tiny little word that appears nine times in this one passage, and that is the wonderful word, ish, meaning man. Oh, I knew that. Help. Does it come back to life? Is there another one down? Is there another one at down? Not anywhere. 
Maybe if I talk to it nicely. Oh, man. Okay, it's Ish. Maybe if I cover it and sing to it. Hold on. Um, ish. All right, let's follow along. Let's do it quickly. I'm going to read it in Hebrew in, with my own running translation, but the English is just below. Exodus 2. In those days, I'm skipping over this, he goes out to meet his brothers. Middle of, of, of line one, Vayar Ish Mitzri Makeh, God bless you, Ish Ivri Me'echav. He sees an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man. If you had to characterize, according to this passage, the, the Egyptian man, what's he like? What do we know about him? Cruel, tyrant. He's, he's, he's give, delivering murderous blows to a, to a, a helpless slave. Um, and Vayifen, the next verse, Vayifen kovacho vayar ki ein ish. He looked this way and that and saw that there was no ish. What does that mean? What do you think that means? No witnesses. No witnesses. The coast is clear. Now, if that's true, he didn't, he, he didn't do a very good job. Why? We're going to find out in a minute that somebody saw him. Everybody knew. Everybody knew. However, if you read this the way that Ha'amek Davar and other wonderful scholars have read it, Vayif and Kovayarki Ein Ish means he looked this way and that to report this terrible event. He went to the police, he went to the court systems. Vayarki Ein Ish. There's no man, there's no one out there who is interested in addressing this horrific injustice that's going on all around. He's looking for help. And when he saw that there was no one, he says, there's nobody here but me. And that's when he picks up whatever he picked up and smites the Egyptian. He says, I've got to be a vigilante here because nobody else is going to help me. And this is important. First of all, how does he, how does he, how does he translate the word ish in this reading? Translate it into Yiddish. Men. A mensch. There's no mensch. This society is so infused with evil, there's nothing else to do. But the, what I'm looking at here is the effect on Moshe, where he's learning something, right? If he starts off in, in a solitary mode and he says, there's nobody here, but I'm alone in the world, and he looks and he sees the Egyptians are tyrants and there's no ish, literally no one here except me, it reinforces the notion that he's got to do everything alone. And that's where he ends up doing this, this act. I know you don't like it, neither do I, but he smacks him and he kills him. By the way, the text itself is not happy about this, right? The people, I, 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 the people, we're going to see, he, the next day he goes out, he sees two Hebrews. And what are they doing? The Anashim, the Hebrew men, what are they doing? They're, they're killing, they're, they're, kinky, they're hitting each other also, right? And there's a great psychological truth in this. People who are, who are abused, abuse others. They're hitting each other. And here he tries to, to give them a, a reprimand, and they look at him and they say, who made you the big bad ish. This is in the Hebrew third line in mi samcha. Okay, a little prayer for this ish. Sar shofet. See, I knew if we let it rest, it would come back to life. Ish. Sar veshofet. Who made you the big ish? Who made you? Who made you the, the appointed you the man? Who appointed you the officer? And who appointed you the judge? We reject your leadership, right? They're looking at him and they're saying, you're just a killer like anybody else. We don't, we don't buy it. And so Moshe, dejected, runs away from Egypt. He says, there's no one here for me. There's no community at all. And he goes to a foreign land called Midian. And there he's going to, the first thing he does, you think he would have learned his lesson to mind his own business. <laughs> but the first thing he does, he sees seven girls who are shepherd girls who are being harassed by some bad shepherds. And he shoos them away, he saves the day. And they go running home to their father who is Jethro, the priest of Midian. Priest, foreign priest number two. Okay, this is where we have to go back into the story. In the Hebrew, Exodus 2, three lines from the bottom in the Hebrew, you're on your own finding it in the English. Jethro sees his daughters coming home early, and he says, why'd you come home so early today, girls? And they say, Batomana, ish mitzri hitzilanu. An Egyptian man has saved us. Now, everybody makes a big deal out of the fact that they call him an, an, an Egyptian. I think it's much more interesting that they call him a man. They recognize this is a mensch. And so they tell their father, and he says, well, where is he? 
למה זה עזבתן את האיש? Why'd you leave him? That's an איש. קיראן לו ויאכל לחם. Bring him here, I want to give him bread. Ah, we're starting to get a little מלכי צדק אסק here. I, foreign priest, want to feed that person, that weary person, bread. Vayoel Moshe lashevet et ha'ish. Moshe agrees to stay with this ish. There's this mutual recognition. You're an ish, I'm an ish. Let's create a community. And finally, in the most unlikely place, Midian, this foreign land where he, he left the land of all these, literally these family members, to come to a place that is totally foreign. And he's going he's to stay with this man, Yitro. He's going to marry Tziporah, his daughter. And ultimately, they're going to have a child. And, and most remarkably, he's going to make this little proclamation. He calls the child Gershom. He says, Ki ger hayiti be'eretz nochria. I was a stranger in, this, in a strange land. What strange land is he talking about? Egypt. Back there in Egypt, where I was related to everybody, I was a stranger. But here, in this, in this new place, Midian, now I'm at home. Why is he at home in Midian? One reason, Jethro, he found a person of, of, of moral character who matches him, who has helped him, who has helped him reach outside of himself, who has said, you don't have to be alone in the world, you're with me now, and I'm going to help you build a family that's going to help you move outward, and this is going to help you be the leader you need to be. Because a person who has to lead actual people cannot be a loner. That won't work. Abraham can be a loner. And in many ways has to be a loner because he's got to hold on to an idea. But somebody who has to lead has to know how to interact with human beings. And Jethro is the one who's going to help make that happen. And he's going to make it happen in a much bigger way um, on page four. And if you look at page four, Exodus 18, the next time these two people meet is after the people have been spared, they've been, they've been Uh, saved. The, 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 the sea has been split. The miraculous salvation has happened. And now Moshe meets Jethro again. And Jethro, I want to call him Jethro, I'm sorry. He, he meets him. And notice here in Exodus 18 the words that I've underlined that bring us back to Malkitzedek. First of all, the first thing he does is he blesses him, Baruch, He blesses him, he blesses his God, just like Malkitzedek. He talks about Abraham's hand, he talks about blessing, talks about God, talks about his hand that is empowered, all the same language, he gives him bread, and he diagnoses the problem. And here, if you look, um, here, I'll just tell you what's happening. They've now set up a little society in the desert. Moses is the judge of all the people. There are 600,000 men who have left Egypt. How many people does that translate into? Several million. Anybody, any Jew who has a problem that needs to go to small claims court, where do they go? To Moses. If they have a problem that has to go to the Supreme Court, where do they go? Moses. To Moses. So here's Moses sitting there. And all day long, all he's got is complaints and, and, ju and judgment problems. He's doing it completely on his own. Why do you think he's doing it completely on his own? That's what he does. He only knows how to, even though Jethro has tried to right, help him move outside of himself, he goes back into this solitary mode. And Jethro looks at this and he says to him, in very, very evocative words, he says, Lo Tov. Oh, beautiful. What's low tov? Not good. Low tov um, and the word levad. He says, it's not good what you're doing to judge the people alone. And I'm looking at these words and I'm thinking, where have I seen those words before? Not good alone. Low tov, levad. Chapter one of Genesis. In chapter one of Genesis, actually it's chapter two of Genesis, but you're really close. God's proclaims this eternal human truth. Lo tov heyot ha'adam levado. It is not good for any human being to be alone. And here is Jethro taking that sentiment and holding it up in front of Moshe and saying, you can't 
do it alone, it's bad. And he tells him, it's not bad just for you. He says, Navol tibol, you will surely burn out. This is three lines from the bottom of the Hebrew. Gamata, gam ha'am hazeh. And this is critical to our understanding. Not only is it bad for you, but who else is it bad for? The people. You can't leave them. You're just going to burn yourself up, and you're going to be an ineffective leader if you do every single thing by yourself. OK, now I'm looking around this room. Right, nods of understanding. Anybody who's ever led anything and always to like delegate other people, right? Believe that there are other people can do something, they can do it as well as you can do it. Right? Here's Moshe who has a real problem with that. And so, and here's significantly the solution to the problem. What Jethro says to him is, he says, Listen to me, this is what you've got to do. Two lines from the bottom in the Hebrew. You have to appoint men, men of valor, men of truth, men, men, men. You have to appoint officers, officers of 50, 20, 10. And the result will be, they will judge the people at all times. And I'm looking at this, and I'm saying, wow, these words are really, really familiar. Anashim, sarim, shoftim. Men, officers, judges. Whose words are we, are we invoking here? The Hebrews, when they were mocking Moshe, they said, who made you the ish, the sar, and the shofet? Who made you a man, an officer, and a judge? Because he was doing everything on his own, the, the lone ranger, and they're saying, that's not leadership. Here is Yitro looking at the situation, and he's saying, if you want to reverse that taunt, here's how to do it. Stop doing everything by yourself, and you really will grow into this role of a man, an officer, and a judge. That's how you lead. Yes, ma'am. Uh, it's interesting, the qualities that Moses was to look for, yes. it said men who fear God, who will spurn ill-gotten gain. Yes, yes. Back to the Abraham story. Very much, very, very true. Very true. Okay. The model is repeated twice. And here, I think in my title, I, I, I decided to put in why is, this was something that bothered me for many, many years. And until I started reading the stories this way, these two priest stories as, as, as conversational partners, all of a sudden I had an aha moment, right? If you were writing a Torah, let's say somebody said to you, write your Torah any way you want. And take the story of the giving of the Torah, put it in any Torah portion that you, of your choosing. Would you put it in a Torah portion that's named for a Midianite priest? It's in Parshat Yitro. And, and but now when I looked at it this way, it made perfect sense. Just as Abraham gets, goes through this process, gets that critical help at the critical moment from his foreign priest and is able to meet God in his personal revelation, Moshe having this, this, this benefit, this help from his priest, his foreign priest, goes directly from this, this is Exodus 18, goes directly to Exodus 19, which is the story of the revelation on Mount Sinai. He's ready now. Now he's a leader who can lead, because Jethro has told him how. And, and, and it's also interesting, if tzedakah u'mishpat, remember if that's the calling, Abraham's story is all about reaching tzedek, malki tzedek, and and, and Moses' story is all about mishpat, about justice, synonyms, tzedakah u'mishpat, now you're ready for Torah. Yes? I, I think there's actually a little bit more in it than this. Go ahead. And that is, if you, you, you cut out some portions of the passage, yeah. and the portions you cut out are the portions where, where Jethro also says, mm -hmm. essentially, go to Sinai, go to Sinai and get instruction. So now Jethro is the one who points them there. And the reason why when you see this is put together in the same passage, mm -hmm. you appoint the judges, you appoint mm -hmm. these people, mm -hmm. and what Moses was doing before then is making it up as he's gone along, figuring out a solution to every problem. Yeah. And, and the instruction is get the laws. Get a set of laws that these people now that you appoint can administer. Mm -hmm. And now you've got an ongoing system that lasts beyond you, Moses. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. It's all part and of the Which same. is why Jethro is so important. Absolutely. 
Okay, I want to get to the one follow-up. You know what, Let, I, I want to take five more minutes, is that okay? And then I, will, I, will, I promise you, I will stay here and answer questions, but I want, to, I want to get, I did promise you one subversive act and I do want to deliver. Um, okay, Let me, before we get there, does anyone have a clue? What, what, what is this model all about? Why is the Torah so insistent on giving us two stories of foreign priests who, tell the, who help that Jewish leader get over that hurdle? Why do you think that matters? Why, did, why shouldn't he be Jewish? What, what is it about that otherness? Yeah. Well, in order to find out who you are, you also have to explore the otherness within yourself. Okay. And so you have, you have externalized that. Uh, good, good. So, uh, the otherness within yourself to appreciate what's, what's those around you, yes? Well, if you're looking at it from a person reading it today, mm -hmm. there are some people who feel unless you're Jewish, you're no good. Also true. And here are stories that yeah. insist on telling you, look at the wisdom that's coming from outside of us, also very true. What else? What is it, though, about that out, looking at it from here, down? God speaks to everyone. Okay. All right. You know what? Yes. Let's go on. Let's go on. The final story, um, there's one more story. And here I want to just bring it back to Malki Tzedek, who was both a priest and a king. And here comes trick question alert, flash, flash, flash. Um, there was one other figure in the entire Bible that is referred to as both a king and a priest. And You'll priest. never get it. King yeah. And priest. King priest, yes. King Who? Priest. You're onto it. You're onto it. Let's take a look. Last page of your sources, Exodus 19. We were left at the foot of Mount Sinai. Let us pick up there. It's Okay, at the foot of Mount Sinai, God says to the people, Now then, if you will obey me faithfully and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Indeed, all the earth is mine. But you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Mamlechet kohanim vegoi kadosh. Who is the king priest in this scenario? We are. Okay, now I'm looking at this and I'm saying, whoa, first of all, question number one and the old stale joke, wait a minute. I thought in order to be a Kohen, you have to be born into the line of being a Kohen, right? That story about the guy who wants to buy his way, to, forget it. Okay, um, you can't do it. So how can, how can God turn to all the people and say, you're now all my Kohanim? How could God say that? What does God mean? So let's look now, the last two sources on the page, Ibn Ezra in the 12th century, in my opinion, every priest in the Bible is like a servant. And the meaning of a kingdom of priests is that through you, my kingship will be recognized when you act as my servants. That brings us back to God's choice of Abraham. Limma'an, I choose you for a weighty responsibility. It's not about privilege, it's about doing something in the world. And then Sephorno in the 16th century, even though the entire human race is dear to me, you will be treasured above them all. And the difference between you, more or less, is that you will understand and teach the entire human race to call in God's name and to serve him as one. It's all about service. It's all about bringing the world toward Torah, whose essence is tzedakah and mishpat. Now. And Orshea says, lo Okay, right. If you look at this, and here's the final piece of it. If the, we have this model of these two stories that have the Jewish patriarch who's having trouble finding his way toward justice, toward tzedakah, toward mishpat, and you have these foreign priests, and here's my perspective on this, who can see what the, what the leader can't see. And that, I think, is the, is the essence and the importance of the otherness of that person. When you're in the story, you can't always see everything that needs to be seen. The person who keeps the best perspective is the person who's outside of it, who can say, here, you, you know, if you just right, adjust this way and that way, you'll be able to get there. The first two stories are that. Abraham gets toward Sedek, Moshe gets toward Mishpat. At the foot of Mount Sinai, God now turns to the Jewish people as a whole and says, you guys have been on the receiving end. You've been the beneficiaries of this from those outsiders. Now it's time to return the favor. You now have a job to do for the rest of the world. You are those king priests. You are going to be on the margins of society. And how true has this been historically? Where the Jews stand on the margins, they're not included, and there's a, there's a downside to that. But what I think what these texts suggest is that there's also an upside to it. 
which is you can see things in the best way, if you're the Jew in the best sense, you can look at a situation, I mean, think of the revolutionaries that, that happened to be Jewish, right? Oh yes, well, there was never a field called psychology, there was never a field, right, the, the Nobel Prizes, all the things of, of being able to see something that, that, that isn't immediately visible to, to the people inside, use that in order to help people get over hurdles so that the world can become a more just and righteous place. And here, I want to conclude, right? Again, you get it? It's the flipping. It's the subversive part. Take the model, throw it up in the air, turn it upside down. You received it. Now it's up to you to, 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 to provide it. And here, citing from one of my very favorite books, is the following. I want to just get back because you guys said it. Um, <clears throat> Okay, two things. If we venture past the pages of the Bible and into the pages of Jewish history, this model of kingdom of priests as perpetual outsider, mentor, and agent of change has great resonance. Jewish annals are filled with examples of Jews as revolutionary guides in the halls of power, in the laboratory, and in the library. This model presents the Jew as one whose outside status allows for greater perspective, creativity, and moral clarity. Okay, now I want to just cite also these stories, when seen as sequels to one another, intimate that it is not the messenger, but the message that is of utmost importance. Only those who prove capable of providing moral and pragmatic guidance, whether Israelite or non-Israelite, will rise to the position of priesthood. In fact, the shifting identity of the priests implies that no one group has sole claim to this distinction. At different times, different people will be able to discern God's will and to instruct others. And finally, in the end, the combined stories of biblical priests challenge both Israelites and non-Israelites to learn from the many possible sources of wisdom and morality in the world. In addition, they challenge readers to seek guidance where it is most needed. At times, assistance is needed in focusing inward and upward from the mundane realities of the Earth's hollow spaces back toward the lofty ideals that dwell among the stars. Although this reorientation may come at the cost of isolation and loneliness, it is often necessary for inspiration and for clarity of purpose. At other times, help is needed in venturing out of solitude and engaging with the world. While such outward engagement may involve compromise, it also brings ideals down to earth where they may form the basis of just and righteous communities. I want to end with those words, tzedakah o mishpat. <laughs>